Friends, uh, let's get back together now. We've just heard a, a wonderful meditation on Acts 20:28. 20, uh, earlier this afternoon, we heard one from Acts 9:31. Both of them having sort of reinforcing themes about the Holy Spirit's work in and for the church. Uh, Alistair, thank you for your message this afternoon, and Lincoln, yours tonight. Thoughts, brothers? Anything you want to begin with? Um, I would just uh, say um, how nice it is. I, I actually haven't really heard Ligon preach. I've been with him a number of times, and uh, just the the warmth and the conviction and the altogether pastoral dimension that uh, comes from that is uh, both very challenging and also very very encouraging. So thank you. Thank you. I know the calling is an awesome calling, but again, to think in terms of him coming down and so debasing himself, and actually what we get to do is a lifting up and a privilege. I knew that, but it was just reinforced by the closing statement by Baxter, and we don't need to ever forget that. Well, and what a wonderful, positive, and humble way to exhort the member not to be arrogant when you say, you know, God doesn't give a gift that you don't need. You know, you're presenting God as loving, which He is, as a caring Father, which He is. And that that gift of the local church and even of the ministry of the Word in the local church, which a Christian in ignorance or arrogance could be tempted to ignore, you just, by that phrase, just lovingly remind us that it's God's condescending mercy, His kind care uh, that gives us those gifts. Praise God for that. I have a question then. Yeah. How do you brothers as pastors of local fellowships communicate to that to your people without coming across as arrogant, power-hungry, and wanting to control? It's easy for me to come in, for example, and now Lig, and say it for you, but how do you say it to your people since you're there week after week and hopefully month after month and year after year? Well, the... The advantage, I suppose, is that it's, first of all, the Bible that's saying it, <laughs> you know. And if, we have, if our people know that we are really our servants of the Word and that, that we ourselves are both under its direction and its correction, then they can also take it from us that, uh, I mean, the way I would say it is, uh, look at what it says. And nobody's more surprised than me. You know, I try and get in ahead of them um, before they say it. But, uh, I mean, uh, no, I think so. I mean, I think it's, the Scriptures take care of it for us. A very practical way in our church's life that I think that's expressed is every time we have a new elder recognized by the congregation, uh, we have then the following Sunday morning, during the time when normally there would be the pastoral prayer of intercession, uh, there will be a prayer for this new elder. And that new elder has vows that he takes that are printed in the bulletin. And then there's some vows the end the congregation takes, will stand and take. But, you know, 75% of that is vows this elder takes. So I'll ask the long question, and he'll respond, I do, or with God's help, I will. Or, And it's just very clear that the Lord is at work in all this by those vows. And then uh, usually two or three or four of us will lead in the congregation praying for him and interceding him. So every elder is received like that, and we have... We have enough elders in our congregation. This happens often enough that it's a kind of punctuated reminder, as you were saying, Lee, that these, these brothers are gifts. I've also been surprised how often 
I've had members of our church say, I love it when you have one of those because all the elders come forward out of the congregation and stand there to pray for this brother. And it's just such an encouragement. And right now we have 28 elders, you know, with a congregation of 930 members. And it's just a, it, it, people just say that I feel loved, I feel shepherded. Just seeing those brothers there reminds me that they're praying for me. Well, to generalize that point, Mark, I've watched you for almost two decades now. Um, honor other men and honor other elders in authority and lift them up and acknowledge them in the sight of the congregation. And that does that for all of us. We begin to honor that office in that man. So you do it in all sorts of ways. Um, in your preaching, in your applications, in your praying and praying for us especially. Uh, and I think that sets a, a wonderful example and exalts the office. And what's really exciting to me, honestly, in Washington, D.C., is, is people come to Washington because they got, you know, grand plans to be masters of the universe. And you watch a man there over the years, over three years, five years, and he begins to develop these new ambitions, these church word ambitions. You know, and suddenly he's moving from the big law firm where he's on the partner track and he's going to the State Department to get the kind of, you know, where he's just got the nine to five job to step down so that he can serve at the church and, and exalting the office. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I would certainly ditto what Jonathan was saying in terms of the commending of the other elders. Um, itself honors the other elders, teaches the congregation to honor the other elders. And it, it, not that you do it for this reason, but just as Jonathan just did with, with Mark, the congregation honors you for honoring other elders. Um, and I know this isn't always the case, but the other thing I would say is uh, I think it's probably normally the case that if you do what Lig just did and what Alistair just did with the text, just walk it through so cleanly, so clearly, and teach your people uh, pastorally and lovingly, um, they begin to experience you as a gift, you know, uh, as, as their souls are fed by the word. And so without ever having to say, I'm God's gift to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds so sweet when you say it to me. <laughs> God's gift to you. People start to come to you because God's been at work in that. And, and praise God for how he blesses his word and the way it benefits the, the faithful pastor. Um, you know, while we're... Uh on this very sort of nice, uplifting note. Um, bring us down, Alistair. Yeah, I'll bring it down. <laughs> hey, um, here we go. <laughs> no, I, I, I was just thinking, because we've, we've been quoting uh, the Jehannine epistles, or people have been quite a bit, and this is a simple observation, but we ought not to assume this or take it for granted, because the spirit of Diotrephes is alive and well in many a congregation. You know, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. So it is a great mercy and blessing when brethren dwell together in unity and when the leadership of the church is united in, in heart and mind and just in the same way as children around a breakfast table know if their mums and dads are in communion with one another 
the church family knows if, 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 if the leadership is, is together and they're alert to it when it's not. So we always want to covet that. We talked about this just briefly this afternoon because I've had a number of the brothers say to me, what I'm hearing today is just uh, right what I, where I, what I need, where I want to go. But the church that I currently pastor is not there. So how do I get them there? And please give us some guidance in terms of time. In other words, I think you have a great story. When you came to Capitol Hill, uh, you inherited a particular kind of church. You wanted to see them move to certain things. How long did it take? And those as well. How long did it take you to get to some of the things that you knew needed to be taking place in the church? But if you tried to uh, cram it down their throat uh, overnight, it just wasn't going to be productive. In fact, it could have been highly destructive. Yeah, I certainly did. I was 33 when I went to Capitol Hill, and I certainly did some things that caused problems that were unnecessary. If I had known that it was going to cause that problem, I wouldn't have done that. It wasn't worth it. But in God's mysterious providence, I stumbled ahead and did some of them anyway. But other times when I did know, I would avoid things until I thought we could kind of do that smoothly. Take church discipline. Well, I mean, that's sort of like the mother load. So uh, I avoided that with a passion. You know, I... I, I did whatever I could do to avoid that. And, and they hadn't been used to that, so that was kind of easy. But, uh, you, you waited till you had elders before you went to discipline. That's right. Yeah, you waited just, till you had a really clear situation. Well, the situation came to us. Yeah, that's well, right. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you, didn't, yeah. you didn't pick a complicated one. No. No, there was a, a brother who was prominent in the congregation who was adulterous. And, uh, and so he was not clearly repentant. And so that really forced us to, to act. Um, and the congregation, with, though with sorrow, with great confidence in that point in Scripture, we, we did act. But as much as possible, one, one older member who joined the church in 1946, uh, he said this to me probably in about 1998 or 99. He said, uh, Mark, it's been fun. He'd seen probably ten different pastors at the church over the years. And he said, it's been fun to watch how you just sit there with a smile on your face. And then when you see an opportunity and nobody's looking, you grab something, change it, put it right back like nothing's happened. <laughs> and you just, you just keep smiling. And he said, that, that's been great because he said, you haven't caused any unnecessary conflict. Now, I think there are times when I did. He was being kind. But it was interesting that was his perspective from 50 years of watching yeah, and, uh, and I was certainly trying to do that, and I think I succeeded sometimes in doing that. Um, two brief comments. One, uh, it was Jim Boyce who said to me years ago, you know, as a young guy, you tend to overestimate what you can accomplish in a year and underestimate what you can accomplish in five years. And um, sometimes the impatience of youth, especially energized by seeing situations where it apparently has all fallen into place may make us unduly impatient and maybe um, cause us to to uh, uh, try and um, uh, you know cr create things in a in a time frame that would be unhelpful but the second thing is that not every situation is necessarily uh, uh, in 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 a condition that that it can be remedied I mean I was in a Baptist church in the west of Scotland 
on my own. It was congregationally governed. They didn't have any concept of leadership at all. And I, I, over time, I, I brought Derek Prime there, the fellow I was working for before I went there, as gracious and godly a little man as anybody ever met, would never ruffle anybody's feathers. But he came and did a weekend on church leadership, the nature of elders, that the distinction between an elder and a deacon is a distinction of function and not a distinction of value, and all really, really good stuff. So I was so pleased, and everyone seemed happy, and I went to the next deacon's meeting, and I said, so we had a wonderful weekend. He said, yes, yes. And I let them go around the room and all say how, how uh, helped they had been and, and, and uh, how clear it had been and everything else. And it finally came back around to me. I said, so, so when, you know, when will we implement this? And they said, oh, we'll never implement it. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, why is that? They said, well, we're members of the Scottish Baptist Union. And the Scottish Baptist Union does not do this. Therefore, it's been a very nice exercise, but we will never do it. And I realized that night that I was going to have to wait for all of them to die. <laughs> or kill them. <laughs> Supply them the teeth. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so or, which, which did you do? Which did I do? Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, I mean, it really... It, it, <laughs> Is, is he evading? Is he I evading? Did. No, 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 I didn't. I did. Just I turned did. into an episode of The Fugitive. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, what, what happened? What happened was I, I, I realized. I think I don't know if I made this up or heard it, but you know, revel, revel, revelation, you know, minus experience equals bondage. That once something is clearly revealed to us in the scriptures as being abidingly truthful and clearly applicable, whether it is a call to obedience on a personal note or the exercise of discipline, whatever it might be, our refusal to enter into that and do what the Bible says takes a church up a side street and it remains up a side street until such times as it is broken to the point where it will actually do what the Bible says. And so for me then, although I never, there was nothing precipitous in it, I knew then that I would never, I probably would never uh, stay in that local church because uh, I was too impatient as a young man to wait for, for the demise of everything. And, and there was clearly no way to, to see it change. So not every young guy out there needs to necessarily think this is his place. You know, this is where his most effective ministry is going to be exercised. So in, you know, it takes skill and, and, and uh, the guidance of others to make those decisions. And churches can be in different situations. I mean, I, I think Mark undertook some pretty, even though you were tactful and you, were, um, you, you uh, exercised discretion on what hills you were ready to die on and what you, what you weren't going to take on, you were able to do some pretty dramatic changes quickly because there was a level of self-awareness in the congregation that if we don't do something, we're not going to be here in a few years. And it gave you leverage that, that some guys in Alistair's situation where the congregation, they, we're just fine. We don't need to change anything, yeah. Pastor. Think well, this is or, or, or you at First President Jackson, where you came into a church that had a long and fruitful right. ministry. The ministry of the Word had been sound for decades. 
It's not that nothing needed to change, but nothing radically needed right. to change immediately. Whereas ours was very much on life support, and they knew that. Right. So, yeah, part of what you have to do is, as Alistair and, and Ligon are saying, you just got to read your situation correctly and, and see what your church is like. And if you're too close up to it, get some brother pastors who know you and or know that local church well and help them to interpret it for you. The, um, the, the church that I grew up in um, had not had an evangelical ministry for a couple of decades when my boyhood pastor came. And when he came, my guess is the majority of the elders and deacons in the church were not regenerate. Um, and so it wasn't a question of them being confessional or reformed. It was just they were unconverted. Uh, he stayed for 11 years, and by the time he left, I think all of the officers of the church were regenerate. And either through death and replacement or being converted uh, in, in the course of the ministry, his preaching was, was rich and it was well-received. He was a good preacher. He, was a, he could tell stories in a, in a way that was uh, not... Um, it, 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 it was very substantive the way he would preach, but it was also very engaging. And he was, he was a very good pastor. But when he left, the man who came behind him then brought in a much deeper expository preaching ministry. And by the time he had served for about 12 years, the, the leadership of the church really understood what being a confessional uh, Christian church meant. Mm. But it, that, it took a 20-something year period for that uh, to happen and two different pastorates. So there, there's the voice theme again. There may be settings where it's going to be a real long slog before the, the big changes, whereas at Capitol Hill, pretty, pretty amazing changes. Didn't over feel like a relatively time, but looking back, there was a lot that happened in a brief, yeah. brief period of time. I think it comes, I tell the students this look, Lig used the uh, analogy of make sure it's a hill worth dying on. I'll say, make sure it's a battle worth losing. In other words, if you knew in advance you're going to lose, but you still have to do it because the gospel's at stake or some cardinal non-negotiable issue, then go ahead, but just recognize that I may be packing my bags, I may be calling the U-Haul, but some things are worth spilling your blood over, but not everything is. And that's the wisdom issue, knowing which battles really cannot be avoided and others which, man, we don't have to do this one today. It's, it's not a grade A uh, first-tier issue. And so patience. I, I'm not here for six months. I'm here hopefully for a long time and make changes as they need to be made. Well, and we're, we're thinking about these issues of membership and discipline and when do I apply them and I have a grid. I want to go through my grid. It's been instructive for me to sit in elder meetings with these other elders, some of whom are older, and watch you guys apply it. So I'm just thinking of you two, just even in a recent meeting, where we had a particular case, and in my mind it was super clear that, you know, this plus that equals that. There's the formula. Come on, guys to watch you two and it was it was actually it was it was, a, it was a tough situation because I quickly realized that you and you and another kind of big man in the room Matt Schmucker all agreed so the three titans agreed and I thought okay there's no way I'm going to win this battle I'm, I'm going down but but uh, it was it was instructive for me to watch you brothers pastorally carefully apply and say okay yes yeah, sometimes one plus one equals two but 
it's more complicated than that because there's other factors at play. And pastorally, wisely pursuing these questions of people coming in and people going out isn't always that clean. And so for, for, for younger men in the pastorate, and I guess I'd put myself in the middle, I'm 41, uh, yeah, I think we have a lot of learning and growing to do as we, as we apply what the Bible says about membership and discipline, but to do it wisely and carefully, and that just takes time. He called us old and fat, didn't he? <laughs> you know, I, I just heard the fat. I didn't hear the old. <laughs> but I, the big I think guys in the room. It's not like you and I both had two barbecue sandwiches. Right. <laughs> well, in that, I think we got a little bit of Thabiti self-reflection in that word fat there, didn't we? As I didn't say it. Um, I'm curious... Since this is the last panel of the day, I'm just curious, Ligon, how you feel, since we're on these matters of membership, just getting very practical, and I'm thinking what pastors here are going to have to face, how do you feel about the fact that you could join Alistair's church, but I think it would be disobedience to Jesus for me to let you join our church? I'm thankful that Alistair will let me join his church. (laughs) And I'm thankful that you care enough about the truth to be concerned about my sin. Okay, is there anything you're not thankful for? (laughs) Seriously, Liggett. I mean... Yeah, you got to love it. It's 9 p.m. and he's he's ready to pick a fight. (laughs) You can't get a fight going here with all can you? I don't think so. Not with Liggett. Wait, where's MacArthur when we need him? Uh. Yeah. Do not tweet that. (laughs) Sadly, this is live stream. Yeah. (laughs) It is. And it's just six o'clock on the West Coast. Worldwide. (laughs) John's still up. So, Ligon, <laughs> on the responsibility of members, uh, do we understand that being a member of the church entails responsibility for even the teaching of the church in part? Well, it certainly does in the sense of selecting those who are going to be the teachers of the church. So the members have to be taught well enough to know what the teachers of the church are supposed to be like and what they're supposed to teach because they have to make a judgment on that in the course of the selection of leaders. So the, the emphasis that Jonathan had this morning on a congregation, the, the level of, of knowledge and of discernment uh, being, that, that's, that's absolutely vital for all evangelical churches to have that understanding of church membership or we're not safe. If we're involved in the selection of the next generation of leaders and we don't have sufficient knowledge and discernment to make good judgments, we're done for. Guys, yep. So, you want to pick a fight, but can I say no, something No, 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 nice? I'm not, I'm not, I was just trying to do something. Can else. I say a point of agreement? Of course. Um, 
I, I appreciate no. the emphasis on elder authority, and I think that's something that can get lost in congregational systems. So your, your friend James Bannerman, for instance, also accuses congregationalists, congregationalists of just giving lip service to the authority of elders. And I think that's kind of true insofar as we've talked, the way congregationalists sometimes talk about the authority of elders. I, I can explain why I think it's misdirected, but, but, but I won't right now. Nonetheless, here's, here's what I want to say. I do think congregations should bear a subjective sense because their authority has not come from themselves, like in a democracy, but it's come from the Holy Spirit, as you, as you emphasize, or Paul emphasizes. There should be this subjective sense of, I need to defer to these people. I need to submit to these people un unless I have you know, clear grounds or in a strong conviction sense, biblically informed conscience sense that I shouldn't because the church is going to get hurt if I, if I do some. So, but there should be that natural, or not natural, that uh, supernatural first instinct to submit to the authority of elders. And I do think Baptist churches too often miss that. And I feel like you wonderfully uh, uh, laid that out for us. Um, just guys, we have a little bit left. Nick Roark, can you just come up here and John Joseph? If you guys have a question that you want to ask, Kevin has a microphone, and who over here has a microphone? Charles has a microphone. And if you just come over to the side and talk to John and Nick, if they think it's a worthwhile question, they will send you to Charles or Kevin. All right, so, so uh, John, you can go on that side. Nick, you can go on that side. So you come up and talk to John or to Nick, and if they think it's a worthwhile question, they'll give you over to the microphone man, all right? Until then, we're going to keep talking. So if you think you have a question that we could answer briefly that would be edifying for everybody, you come on down and try it with one of the guys. All right. Anything else on the messages we've heard today on this idea of membership we want to think about? Well, not so much on membership, but just, just great appreciation for both of the messages uh, from this afternoon and this evening. Um, I just, you know, this brother's a, a preaching hero. I just, if, one of the things I want to work on in my preaching is clarity. And I don't quite know anyone who seems as clear to me yeah. as Alistair in his preaching. And so I was just watching that again today and marveling in that, just so instructed from Acts 9.31. Um, and, and brother, likewise, uh, not only clear, but I just love the way um, you, you were beautifying the office of elder and the membership at the same time. Mm. And um, the way you left us with Christ by, with, with that little run you did around, when I think about your incarnation and the justification and you know, all the way to glorification, I ask you, what do you get? And God says, you... Um, yeah, just thank you for leaving leaving us with the Savior and, and in that sort of sweet spot uh, between the Lord and His people. We're grateful for that. Anything else, guys? Alistair? Not a question from Maybe. We'll, we'll find out. Really? <laughs> there we have well, a church, we do. Have uh, church membership well, interview over there. Is it? <laughs> All right, my name is Sam Shepard, and I'm in the college here at Southeastern. 
and I go to Mongo Day Church here in Raleigh. And uh, I was going to ask a question about how to respond to uh, college students that attend your church but um, value college ministries over church membership and how to uh, teach them and inform them on the uh, importance of church membership. So, Sam, you're a college student? Yes. So are you a member of a church here? Yes. Ah, okay. And some of your friends are not? Yeah, uh, I know some. And they're uh, here in the room with you right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Sam thinks. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we just have some uh, people who come from like NC State and UNC. Yeah. Uh, they come to our church on Sundays, um, but they have small groups uh, with different ministries at their campus, and so they don't uh, join the church for that reason. Good he, question. He, he was doing all right till he put NC State in the same sentence with UNC. <laughs> I don't want to help him now. (laughs) (laughs) Alistair, it looks like we're down to you, brother. Um, Well, when I was in Edinburgh, and uh, we had a lot of uh, university students, um, we encouraged the university students to become members of Charlotte Chapel while they were there. We said that even if they were only going to be there for 12 months, there was value in it because of all the things that we've said. But we also said to them that it really was their choice, provided they were you know, committed in membership, whether in this period of time, in their university career, whether they should be involved in the young people's uh, work in the church, or whether they should be taking the opportunities of um, the UCCF things in the university, um, so that we wanted them to recognize that they had a freedom in that. But we didn't, we didn't cast membership off against university involvement. We would have said, you know, your university involvement will be an outreach expression of our church family, but we want you to be part of it, and, and we will care for you. On September 17th on the Nine Marks website blog, Dave Russell wrote a great article called College Students and Church Membership. Dave, stand up. So here's a brother who you can uh, come talk to about this at a break also. Five things to consider. Church membership should not be kept out of sentimental value. Church member is is meant to be meaningful. Where do you gather regularly? Who is best positioned to keep watch over your soul? College students should not be thought of as a special case. Those are the five headings. So, ninemarks.org, September 17th of this year, college students and church membership. Very good article. Great. So join, join a church where you live, if you can. Well, I tell the students when they come here, first thing, new student orientation, it's wonderful that you're here, you're going to study the Bible, you're going to study theology, Greek and Hebrew and all those things, but we are not a substitute for the local church. Southeastern Seminary is not ordained of God, the local church is. And therefore, there's where you need to plant your life and even have a higher priority on your participation in your local church than you do here. That honors God, and you'll do better here as well. And so I really push it. We're blessed. We have many, many, many good churches in this area, and we want to be a part of exactly what Alistair referred to as reaching out into the communities that are so international at NC State, Duke, uh, UNC, uh, 
East Carolina, Appreciate that who put a big whooping on North Carolina last week. I, I was going to bring that up. Well, brother, go right ahead. It's, you know, it's a good time to do evangelism at UNC. Yes, but, it is. Let's take, uh, let's take a question now from over here. Hello, my name is Bill, and my question has to deal initially with Al Mohler just published an article titled, basically, There Is No Third Way, and he's discussing the relationship between the local church and homosexuality. And my question is, how can we practice the purity of the local church and regenerate church membership in light of the growing pressure for the local church to embrace the issue of homosexuality? And, and Bill, by embrace the issue of homosexuality, you mean approve of approve homosexual of it behavior? and possibly make them members of a local church. Because I think this and is an issue them, that we're... And by you mean make members of people who approve of and practice either homosexual behavior? My actual question boils down to how should we approach individuals that are homosexual that are wanting to join the local church. Yeah. Because as Al Mohler said, there is no third way, but how do we pastorally apply Bill, when you say are homosexuals, I just want to make sure, you're not saying that it's impossible for a Christian to struggle with that. I'm trying to see how you guys would interact with that question. Because these are okay, the questions. One way I would interact with that question is by saying pastorally, <laughs> I have no interest in making it seem like there's any sin that somebody can okay. struggle with by the very fact of struggling with it means they can't be either a Christian or a member of a church. Mm-hmm. So I'd want to be very clear on that, lest, okay. lest I be misunderstood. So that's where I would begin pastorally. Okay. Yeah. Brothers, you want to pick that up? Well, beginning where you begin, and then like every other person who's coming to membership in the church, uh, bring, uh, we need to have some conversations about bringing that area of our lives under the Lordship of Christ. So just as we would have someone who, who might come to the church and might be living with their girlfriend, we're not going to bring them into the membership of the church without actually dealing with that discipleship issue uh, and saying, actually, let's, let's walk through this. You're a professing believer. Um, what do you understand that to mean in terms of obedience to the Lord in this area of your life? And let's just patiently, gently, prayerfully walk through that, practically assist wherever we can until we get to the point where um, we, we could feel confident in recommending a person to membership. Other guys? I think you made a good point of clarification. We do not want to say that Christians don't struggle with sin, any sin and all sin. So am I convinced that someone can be absolutely regenerate, born again, but they still struggle with sexual sin? You pick the category. It applies across the board. It's a different thing than saying that what God calls sin is not sin. And that's where the pressure's coming, where you've got folks saying that uh, it's not sinful or, and I'm not going to mention names because that would just be counterproductive, but you've got some who are accusing us of being selective in the sins that we're going to deal with and uh, who are we to pick and choose Uh, We pick the ones that are easy for us to throw darts at, but we ignore the ones like, you take your list, backbiting, gluttony, anger, so on. And so they accuse us of hypocrisy. And so I think it still comes back again to we are a community of repenting sinners who do call sin what God calls sin. And we don't need to have congregations that whitewash any sins, especially those, as First Corinthians points out, that are unrepentant of, public, and very serious. And he gives you a list of that, which falls into the category of, uh, of very serious. 
But I think there's the posture that we have to take, and there is an absolute, and I want to talk about it a little bit tomorrow, but we've covered so much of it. There's an absolute distinction between those that you actually invite into covenantal membership and those who attend. All are welcome to attend. All are not welcome to enter into covenantal relationship as bona fide members of this local body of believers who were bought by the blood of Christ. Yeah, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and you see that list where Paul says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these people, people who do these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's extremely serious and extremely clear. And there's no way we can faithfully love God and love them if we don't tell the truth about that. And part of that will then have to be lived out also uh, in our membership practices. I'll say four things real fast. Number one, show great compassion people struggling with same-sex attraction and make it a safe place in your church to talk about it. And don't, like, panic like you would with other sins, but just talk about it like you would with other sins. Number two, yeah, preach the doctrine of the sinfulness of it. Number three, don't give approval to those who practice such things. So getting into the public square... We can't approve of same-sex marriage because we can't give approval to those who practice such things. And number four, talk about and pray about and prepare your members for persecution because it's going to come. And th- 3A, if I can, don't give approval not merely to those who practice such things but to those who approve such things. Yeah. Because that's where our huge problem is right now in, uh, in Christianity, Protestant Christianity in America. Mark, let me say yeah. this too. You have people that will say but I have a high view of the Bible. I'm going to tell you this. If you have someone that, for whatever reason, doesn't want to use the categories infallible and inerrant, you need to have a warning sign go off. I don't care. Oh, I believe the Bible. I think it's inspired. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a very heavenly book. Whatever they want to say, but do you believe it's infallible and inerrant? And they start pulling back, because I haven't found anyone yet in this whole debate, and I'm listening a lot too that says, I believe in its, in its infallibility and inerrancy, but I'm willing to pursue something like this third way. I haven't met that person yet. The persons that I meet that want to approve a third way waffle and even reject speaking of the Bible in terms of its inerrancy and infallibility. It's coming back against why I'm glad you guys are doing the conference. It's becoming a litmus test again. I didn't think it'd come back around this quickly, but it has, and it's here. And it- Probably, this is obvious, stating the obvious, but probably should say, I, I, I would assume that every church represented on this platform has persons in its membership who are repentant sinners, who are fighting through um, sexual sin and same-sex attraction among them. So, yeah, multiple such people. Yeah. yeah. Hello, my name is Micah. I'm from Boston, the Boston area, and I serve in Chapel of the Cross in Westboro. I really love you guys' thoughts on this. Uh, my question has to do with when a member might need to leave a church or stay. And I guess I kind of frame it this way. Uh, not really talking about the Christian that's maybe church hopping and would be willing to leave a church for any reason, but maybe a Christian that is really pursuing God, really wants the gospel to be spread in his church, but isn't a leader in place of high leadership. So I'm assuming there's probably a difference there on a leader that has more influence, but maybe somebody who's a member, maybe a lay leader in some capacity, but doesn't really see the leadership changing things that 
are really important, and I don't want to name the specific thing, but maybe at what point would that person need to consider sticking it out, or would they need to pull out and find another church? The meeting? Uh, they should consider sticking it out from the start. I, I think love calls us to endure, to persevere, to bear with one another. So sticking it out should be on the table from the start. Uh, from there, then, I think they need to do some triage. So are the issues we're dealing with, are they gospel issues? The denial of the gospel, the denial of the deity of Christ. Are these fundamentals, are these cardinal points? Uh, or are they some practical things, um, secondary issues? Uh, you need, really need to make that distinction. So don't affirm the gospel or, or a false gospel by your membership in a local church. Uh, withdraw from that. Um, the other thing that needs to be kept in mind, you, you sort of mentioned there, is this person is not a leader in the church. And I think they really need to mainly be in the posture of, of being teachable and submitted to the leadership rather than trying to direct the leadership. I, you know, the, the congregation hasn't recognized them in that way. Uh, they're not called, therefore, to reform the church in that way, uh, but rather to pray for, support, encourage their leaders. Um, and, and that would be a good posture to maintain. So there's some quick things there. Ligon, anything to add on that? Yeah, I, mean, that, I think that's the best general advice that can be given. Everything else would have to be derived from the specific situation. Because that, the, the scenario could be so varied that beyond what Zabidi has said, you, you don't know exactly how to counsel. Certainly you as the pastor should never be scared by the thought that they need to go someplace else. Yeah. That's not like, that's not the, the, the sky falling. You know? And if they ever have that idea and they kind of use it as a threat, you should be nothing but cheerful and calm. You know? So... I, I actually am more the lay leader. I'm not actually the pastor, but yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, the, yeah, just the variety of reasons are, are almost infinite. So I would just seek some more specific advice. Yeah, thank you, brother. I think we've got time for one more. If there's one over, over here. Yep. Stephen Halfley, Wake Forest, North Carolina, Grace Baptist Church. I serve as a deacon at the church. My question relates to the uh, problem of baptizing children too early. It, specifically, do we do our children a disfavor by emphasizing children in youth ministries so much so, especially if it takes them out of worship and observing adult Christians in worship, and uh, what should the relate, proper relationship between the church and youth ministries be? Thank you for the question, Steve. That's nice to finish. It's nice to finish with an easy one, isn't it? That's right. Um, and on a Friday night, yeah. kind of so appropriate. I, I take a little stab at this. Um, America has done a phenomenal job in an arena that Britain never really got a handle on when it came to education and uh, the integration of truth into the variegated life of a church family, Sunday school, whatever that means, you know. Britain really has got, had no clue about that and still really doesn't have much. So I want to say that first of all, that we are the beneficiaries of that and, <clears throat> and have learned from that and have implemented much of it. 
But it has occurred to me in this last little while that often our pluses can prove to be our minuses as well. And that the way in which the church traditionally in America has, has, divide, has been divided along um, age lines, I think has begun to really falter and to show up where the, where the cracks lie. Um, the, the, the Barnum material, I don't know whether it's good, bad, or ugly, but uh, the, the, to the degree that those things represent some kind of area of truth, this notion that there's a, there's a sort of a full-scale um, avalanche post-high um, school and into the college age, and we're, we're losing all these young people, that's what the story really is. I would say we're not because we never had them. That in many of the churches, these young people, just I think is the inference of this question, they have never really been integrated into the life of the church. They have not, they have been, they have been a segmented thing that's gone all the way through. And it may just be my experience of it, but you know, I've, I've grown, I mean, I've, I've gone and spoken in a church and they have a wonderful group of young people that are all singing a wonderful song and then the song ends, and they don't just go down to their seats, but they go out the door to who knows where. And, and I'm about to preach, and I'm jealous for the opportunity to preach to them. I mean, I'm not an idiot. I can make myself understood to teenagers. I love teenagers. But no, they send them over to, you know, Bill's place, you know, who's got a basketball and half a Bible verse who's going to try and help them. And so they're just clowning around over there eating pizza and the Word of God is being taught in here and some genius decided that that's the way to really, really form them for the future. And actually, most recently, I've just asked the young people, the, the guys who run uh, the, the ministry in our church to remove the Sunday morning option for teenagers in our church because of this very issue that I want them in the church and I want them praying so the older people can hear them pray. I want them learning how to pray from the older people. I want to see mothers and fathers sitting with their children. And, and, and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think we've got, we got a real good opportunity here to, to reorientate this whole thing in a way that would be far more beneficial in the long run. Uh. In First Baptist Grand came in. Did you have a way for young people to opt out of the service, other than just not coming? I mean, uh, up to about age ten, and we were steadily moving the age limit down. Okay. Uh, because we we recognized that you could be born to Christian parents mm -hmm. and live all the way up to your 18th year and head off to college, and never have had a mature worship experience. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I think that's true in so many churches. Ligon First Pres Jackson. We uh, we had an option up to about third. Uh, we had an option up to about third grade for a catechism uh, class that would happen, uh, but you know our our encouragement was for for families to sit together and worship, and the majority of our families did that. Yeah. Our situation would be very similar to Lincoln's. We have something. Uh, everybody is in for the first hour hour and a half of the service, oh. but then. Uh, the, uh, the the sermon part, uh, there is something for... The second hour and a half. That's right. There, there, there is something for kindergarten to third graders uh, that they can go to if the parents... Are okay but I think another piece of this, just to 
utterly agree with, I'm not sure we ever had them at that point when they go off to college, is that I think teachers, both in churches and in schools, Christian schools, can be really careless with their words in giving little kids assurance of their salvation. I'm not even talking about baptism here, but just giving, you know, tie up, you know all you kids are Christians, saying things that make everybody in the class to think they're Christians. I, my, the, the Christian school my girls went to, the, the really good school for a year or two, did this. And so I think that's another place we need to be careful. Danny, you want to close us in prayer? I will be glad to. Lord, it has been good to be here today. Uh, my heart has been encouraged and strengthened, uh, warmed, challenged uh, by Jonathan and by Mark, by Alistair, by Lig. And uh, I wait to hear the beady tomorrow. And uh, you have fed us. Uh, you have stretched us. And, uh, Lord, it has been good to gather here today with these brothers and sisters. So uh, tonight, give us a good rest that we might come back tomorrow uh, vital, excited, uh, prepared for our final time together. And may, as a result of this weekend, uh, our service as uh, shepherds who have been raised up by the chief shepherd, may our service be more faithful, more diligent, and done with even greater joy and enthusiasm than ever before because we truly do have a great and high calling from you. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.